0: of Israel together and said listen carefully Israel hear the decrees and regulations I am giving you today so that you may learn them and obey them the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Mount Sinai the Lord did not make this covenant with our ancestors but with all of us who are alive today at the mountain the Lord spoke to you face to face from the heart of the fire I stood as an intermediary between you and the Lord, for you were afraid of the fire and did not want to approach the mountain. He spoke to me, and I passed his words to you. This is what he said. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me, in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Observe the Sabbath by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your males and female servants, your oxen and your donkeys and other livestock, and any foreigners living among you. All your male and female servants must rest as you do. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out of his with his strong hand and powerful arm. This is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you. Then you will live long live a long, full life in the land your Lord, your God, is giving you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's wife. You must not covet your neighbor's house or land or male or female servant, ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor
1: be to God thank you for that reading Chris Uh kids are welcome to go with Kelly outside where they have individually wrapped coloring stuff to color and do a lesson it's odd because we, we keep adding stuff back in as we return from the time of, of not meeting together. And so I used to have all these announcements and words down, and now it's like, the thing, they go, they do it. Um, go in peace, to love and serve the Lord, whatever that is. This sermon, um, to sort of be clear from the start, has a... Um, two sort of challenges sort of for it. One thing, the first thing and the most important thing that I want to do is sort of try and reclaim the context that we hear these words in. The t- t- Ten Commandments, I think, can be projected as just sort of sound moral advice, but uh, what I want to do is bring it back to the context that we've these words come from, that it's not just some general moral advice. In the email this week, uh, it was Dallas Willard who used to joke that that Christians want to hang them up in courthouses, but not in their homes. Um, and when I think about that, I don't think I've ever seen a set of Ten Commandments hanging in somebody's house. Um, it's often the Isaiah, what, even you so grow weary, and they shall be renewed on eagle's wings, that I see more often than the Ten Commandments. Um, but to to sort of put the Ten Commandments, and next week I think it's even a greater challenge to put the Shema back in context. Here, O Israel, that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, is that we pull these things out of context and so we mean sort of that we are called to love God. That's what we're called to mean, but we don't talk about the God whom we're called to love. Um, That there's more to just saying we love God with God, that German word um, that could mean a lot of other things and lots of other gods, and to call to the particularity of our God. What does it mean to follow and know this God, the one who rescued you? And so how do we sort of reclaim that space, particularly in a world where in my career I'll tell people I'm a pastor at a church and they'll say, oh, that's great, I connect with God in nature. And it was an article I read um, two months ago that said pastor's challenge at that moment is probably actually to help the person realize that we're talking about different gods. Um, And so my joke with a friend, he was like, role play this out for me, how you would respond. I'd say, well, it's great that your God gives you much more extra free time and I'm sure some extra money. My God seems to want me at a certain place at a certain time on a certain day to enjoy that life together. But it must be nice not to have other people around too in your time with that God because man... My God has chosen some people to put in my life that and now i can I'll stop because i'm um, <laughs> now i'm talking about you guys um i didn't realize that before I started role playing it with you um, that there are many things that we sort of say this is God, this is good um, godly America, this is good godly culture, and yet we don't pause to reclaim who is the God that we're talking about now I printed the psalm for park this morning and i didn't know it said yahweh in it. park did you is that what it said? That's what you read. It said the lord in all caps, right? Yes, yeah. So if you we've joked about this before, but if you're bored enough to read the introduction to your bible, uh, it has one. It will often tell you when it refers to Yahweh, uh the particular name of God, it will be shown most often in english translations as all caps, O L O R D. Um and there are other words for God, Elohim being one of them, which almost has, um, could be interpreted the God of gods, or the God of many gods, um, is still preserved as G-O-D God in our English Bibles. And so, worth noting um, for your own right reading, is it referring to the personal name of God or is it referring to the general vague sense of God? Um, and... If you really want to do something interesting with this, read the book of Jonah with this lens on, because it back and forth in the book of Jonah. Um, needless to say, we have a particular name for our God. One of the challenges, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this today, we've talked about it at our church often, is what sociologists call moralistic therapeutic deism. And it says it's the default position of most teens. Uh, when that study was done, these teens are probably in their late 20s now. Um, but one of the things that they said afterwards is that it's probably the default position of most people in North America and most Christians as well. And what it means is that the people believe in a God who orders the world and watches over life on earth. That's the deistic part, but it's vague. It's there's a God who does that. God watch wants people to be good, nice, and fair as, as taught by the Bible and most other religions. That's your moralistic tenet of it. Um, the central po- goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. There's the therapeutic. Um, and God is not involved in my life except for when I need God to resolve a problem. That's deism and therapeutic combined. Good people go to heaven when they die. That's the moralistic. Um, this is sort of the modern heresy of our times, I think, that, that we have to grapple with. The hard part is is it's, it's a hard target to hit. Um, because you don't really want to chase after the opposite of many of these things, um, but you want to tilt them to their, to their um, specificity, their, their concreteness in the God that we worship. They're not often things that you want to say, oh, God doesn't care about you. Um, the God does care about you, and yet the care of this God that we know in this way is different than thus vague notions of therapeutics. And so the reason I bring that up is because this is what we'll often see in our culture with the Ten Commandments. Um, I looked up Ten Commandments by in front of courthouses. This is one example. Um, There are several others you could find, but they generally take the same form with the Ten Commandments written at the top and then them listed um, properly in King James English as they should be. and and that's sort of the way in which we confront the Ten Commandments in this world. And in and, and this, I think, regardless of what we say about whether we should have them hanging in courthouses and are they the foundation of Western law and morality and this, that, and the other, you can notice a couple things missing from this. Um, one, most of the penalties are missing for not keeping them. I, I guess they assume if you're at a courthouse, you know there's penalties. Um, uh, But most of the penalties are missing, but the most important thing missing is the introduction to the Ten Commandments. That which is almost attached to the first of the Ten Commandments. I am Yahweh your God who got you out of the country of Egypt, out uh, out as a household of slaves. That I am the God who rescued you. That there's this thing with the Ten Commandments is that they make sense to a liberated and redeemed people. They're not just laws for everybody everywhere. They're laws for people brought out of Egypt by the strong arm of God. And what's embodied within them is is what one scholar calls an emancipatory ethic, an ethic of emancipation, emancipation that sort of proclaims life on the other side of slavery and death. We cut off that this God is the God who has rescued us. And instead, try to turn them into just good moral principles. But they come, and this is that first point of the sermon that I want to talk about, of the context of a God who's specified in history in his acts and what he's done. They're a call for a particular people to live as a public witness in a particular way in the world. It is certainly not wrong that many of these have been adopted into law codes throughout the world. But at the same time, the root of them is knowing who this God is who has rescued you. To know that you have come out of slavery. Now Calvin, this is rare we have two Calvin quotes on the back of the bulletin uh, two weeks in a row. Um, but Calvin even captures this in his comments on, on the Ten Commandments, um, which is, I'll put up on the screen too, the Lord, and it's on the back of the bulletin. For the Lord indicates that he has delivered them so that they might recognize him as the author of their freedom, giving him honor and obedience. But so that we may not think that this has nothing to do with us, we must regard the bondage of the people of Israel and Egypt as a figure of the spiritual captivity in which we are all held until the Lord delivers us by his strong hand and transfers us into the reign of freedom. The way that in ancient times, wishing to raise up the church as Israel, he delivered that people from the cruel domination of Pharaoh by whom they were impressed. So in the same way today, he draws all those whose God he shows himself to be back from the unhappy bondage of the devil, which is presented as the figure of the physical captivity of Israel. Therefore, there is no creature whose heart ought not to be set free on fire by hearing this law, since it comes from the Sovereign Lord, as all things have their origin in him, it is right that their goal be directed to him. What Calvin is saying is that these commands are meant for a people who have been rescued from something. And so for Israel, they were rec- rescued from slavery uh, and, and death in Egypt. So too the Christian is rescued from, in his uh, marvelous phrase, um, the, ch- 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 sorry. the unhappy bondage of the devil. The Christians, too, are brought out of this. And so the context in which the Ten Commandments come to us um, is similar. We'll, we'll look at this graph one last time, which is, is not true. We will look at it again. I, I, I don't know why I lied. Um, uh, I, I think it's a very helpful way to understand how we are in the world. The top one, we know, being a timeline of our life when it is in the bondage of the devil, in the bondage of sin and slavery in Egypt, and the bottom timeline being our rescued life in which we are brought to new life in God. And that in the meantime, we exist in this overlapping of the ages in which we are pulled back with our own sins and with our own tendencies towards that unhappy timeline, but in which we know our true identities when we pray and sit with God are pulled onto that new timeline that goes on in life. This week, I looked it up from when we went through the book of Exodus. For some reason, they're switched. I don't know why, or Ephesians, I don't know why in Ephesians, I thought the line for eternity and life should go on top, but such is what it is. Um, uh, The line on death is on the bottom, and that that timeline definitively comes to an end in that day in which we are rescued from God. And the timeline in which we are brought into new life through Jesus Christ is one that goes on. And one of the things, the reason for the dotted line as I look at it now, is because the seeds of that rescue were sowed in Egypt before they were sowed in the church. And so it's not something that just has its advent in Christ, but one that has early advent in this rescue from slavery and sin in Egypt. And so that we are brought into new life by God today. And so what we proclaim about these Ten Commandments is that they are for a people liberated from the sin and slavery of death that they set sort of signposts for the margins of life so that we can live as a whole people on the new land, that they bring us into guidance into the new world. And one of the things that, that for me, I, I personally with the Ten Commandments, is they have always, up until recently in li- my life, been abstracted from their original context. It's not often I've thought about what does it mean to be one rescued. Now, we've talked about this in the book of Deuteronomy so far. Moses is very clear when he talks to the Israelites. He says, Yahweh, our God, solemnized a pact with us at Horeb. It was not with your parents that Yahweh solemnized this pact, but with ourselves, these people here today, all of us who are alive. In bringing the pronunciation and the words into the present. God makes this pact again and renews it again with you. You have been rescued. You came into this pact. You've been brought into this world. Ancient memory had a way of adapting to this better than we do. But by bringing this to the present, it becomes our reality as well. And so for me, it was often that I would hear these words and see those signs, again, abstracted from the notion of being rescued, that I'd say that's all good and fine moralistic advice, um, but it doesn't mean much for me today. But what I found is that the church throughout history has really tended to bring these words into regular life. They were up in churches They were, if you look at the catechisms of the 1600s and earlier, things that Christians would memorize along with the Lord's Prayer. That they were these things near to them. Now, there are um, traditions uh, in the Christian church that when it comes to the time of confession, which we practice after the sermon, they would read the entire Ten Commandments. They were very live and active for the church community as this concrete covenant. And as we talked about, the, the book of Deuteronomy has this form of a treaty as well as it has a, a form of a marriage ceremony as well. That Exodus passage that Brian read for us during the um, uh, worship set has this, has this notion of this untamable power that's coming near to these people to make them anew in the world. Exodus, the story, has this notion of almost of this birth of this new people where there was no people before. That God is intimately connecting himself to something, a body in the world, and calling them to be his sort of representations is what's lost often when we talk about the Ten Commandments. And so the first point of today's sermon was to reclaim that space. The second is to, is to sit with each commandment very briefly. And it will be very brief. Um <coughs> Um, The first commandment, uh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. One of the interesting things about the Torah, which we've been going through one book each summer for the last couple summers, is the the Torah teaches monotheism to the Israelites, but it isn't often denying that the world of other gods exists. Paul in Corinthians has an allusion to that as well, that, that there might be other beings in which other nations have, but, but you have no other options. You are wedded to this God. You, um, in, the, in the classic words of, of the wedding ceremony, um, forsaking all others will follow this God. The first thing sort of laid out for them as they move from this land of slavery and into the promised land is that there will be other gods around that want to tempt you and to bring you into life, and you shall have none other before Yahweh. God doesn't share space. God is trying to make a people fully allied to who he is, wedded to his place in the world that these are the people who shall be his people. And so it cancels this ability to have split loyalty. The second commandment, which we hit on last week with idolatry, uh, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or above the earth or beneath in the waters below. You shall not bow to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation for those who hate me, but showing love to the thousands of generations for those who love me and keep my commandments. A lot going on in this one. Um, first is you shall not make any images above or below That that God is not going to be captured in in an image. And this this has this way of of doing sort of two things for these people. One is that there is no place they can go and pledge allegiance to something else, to an idol, and begin to think that that is their God. The second thing, and and I, I came on the record as not being crazy about the concept of the Imago Dei or the image of God, as a grounding for humans understanding themselves. So the catchphrase, you know, we're all made in the image of God, I find less than helpful. But in, in this context, there's also a notion that God has already sent his image on earth. We don't make idols of our God because God already fashioned humanity to be captured in the image of who that our God is. And so one of the things, the, the, the benefits for us of having an idol is that we are no longer called into the ancient art of neighborliness but called to defend the idol. And so when we find these other idols and other idolatries, we can then sacrifice other things to it. But if humanity is at least the best representation of the image of this god, then where is our reverence due if we want to give it into the world? To God or to our neighbor, but not to an idol. The third thing going on in this passage is this generational curse thing, which comes up in God's character thing in Exodus. And I just want to point out two things. One is uh, later in Deuteronomy, it says that you're not allowed to punish children for what their parents did. And so what this means is a little bit more complex than what we think it is. But the second thing that I've often missed until I read it very slowly, which is often the solution to to figuring things out, reading slower, is third and fourth generations for those who hate me. I will show uh, faithful love to thousands of generations who love and keep me. That God's goodness and love abounds much more than curses and such. Thousands in one, three and four in the other. And, and this is, I think, a challenge that's often been lost on me in the modern world, at least I remembered it more when I was younger, which is how is it just God supposed to order a disordered place? He can't just say, I'll show everyone love, for thousands and thousands of generations with no regard to what they've done. Otherwise, injustice can reign. And so there's an importance there in, in, in the justice of God being manifest in these things. And, it, and what Deuteronomy makes clear by taking this away from us later, it's manifest in the justice of God and not in our justice. Well, your dad was this way, so you're your host. Um, that, that's between God and them and not us. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. We pray every Sunday for the hallowing of the name, or in the translation I prefer in the Lord's Prayer, that God would uphold the holiness of his name. In ancient Israel and in many ancient societies, the name of your God could be used and provoked in different ways to sort of secure, he probably wants to go <laughs> back outside. Um, uh, it's set in that she was not here. Um, uh The name of your God was in some sense almost a a talisman to sort of take some capture in the world, to sort of preserve your life. And to even be able to swear by the name of your God was able to be able to sort of make a reality. And what God says is that's cut off from you. You shall not misuse my name. There's this, in, in in the prophets we miss this because we don't have the same relationship to God's name, but it's God's name that will resound throughout the earth in that fulfilling day. That this name that God gave particularly to these people has its own guardedness to it. And it can't be tossed about or misused. That's why we pray that God would uphold or hallow his name. And it's not to, to be used cheaply. The next one is to observe the Sabbath, which is a great. Uh, we put this one up in front of courthouses and I have no idea why. Because um, we don't honor the sabbath ourselves Um, and what's interesting about the this commandment is is two things maybe more Um, the first is that in exodus when this appears it's a creation mandate that god when he created the world rested right which is a good memory for us to to have in mind when we take a day of rest to come together and to worship the lord and to serve and to and to do this thing when it's told again in the book of Deuteronomy, it's actually a memory mandate from being rescued from slavery and sin in Egypt, which is another good thing to remember. And so it's, on this day you rest because in once work had no end. There's a, one of the um, biggest lies uh, about th- th- when we think of work is um, over, I think it's over Auschwitz, there was a sign that said work will set you free, which is one of those Horrible, horrible lies in which that was never meant and never true. And yet, in our world, we live by that work will set you free. Continue the means of production, continue working, never rest, and keep going. That God, in freeing people from slavery, wants them to be free. And the way that they can keep that memory alive is by taking a day of week in which they don't work and seek productivity, in which they don't seek to make their own. And now I would say that there's a justice component of this, is that I believe that we've talked about that these laws were meant for a rescued people. But in this one, it's actually also meant for the people who work for you. They're your slave, is supposed to be freed from the cycles of productivity and work as well. It's not just you getting a day off. And I've long been, my last church, they really did stop inviting me to lunch after church because I said, it's, it's, it, I'll go, by the way. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll pray you pay. Um, uh, but I would, I would suggest to them that it is odd that when we want our day off, we go and make other people work harder. Um, it was a, uh, in Colorado, you still can't buy a car on Sunday. Um, we used to have blue laws that sort of protected this sort of abuse in which we would say, well, it's my day off, but everybody else should have to work harder. But there's a justice element to this in which people, all people are to be freed from the endless cycles of work. And what God does in creating this command is, is makes these people we talked about that liberation ethic, a, a public thing. When Jews are in captivity and then the land, this is what stands out. This is what makes them something else, that they rest on this day. This is one of the more public aspects of this, which is perhaps why we've tossed it off in the modern world that we would be known as a people of rest, is that all the other ones you can work at. This one you can't work at. What good is that to us? Enough on the Sabbath. The next one is to honor your parents. My parents are here today, and um, uh, you're supposed to honor your parents as you're being brought up is, is what my mom taught me. We were talking last night. I said, "Mom, can you name all ten commandments?" Um, and she she did well at that, and I said, "Well, when I was growing up, you only taught me this one um, um, and And now they're retired and live in Sonoma, California. And the context of the original command seems to be you're supposed to care for their parents when they're old. I'm like, but they live in Sonoma, California. Can't they care for me? Um, uh, That there's this way in which the kids' respect for their parents was sort of natural to this society, but what it was about is when your parents have lived out their usefulness, that you would still respect them, that you would still give honor to them. And that's why I think this one is paired next to the command for the Sabbath. Is is they're both an expression of caring for uselessness. To cease from work, to honor those whom no longer can work. We'll put you to work later. But um, to honor those whom no longer can work is to care for those people. Is that is that these two together? And they're the only ones that call out honor and to observe. Uh, you notice people will say, "Well, it's a, just a list of things not to do." Not true. Um, there are positive commands as well. Enough of that. Ah, feeling guilty. Uh, you shall not murder. Um, so, any if you have any atheist friends, they're like, "Church doing great at this one." Um, and and I think that this word captures. Part of what the Book of Deuteronomy is about is caring and making a just society. If somebody harms you, you can't just go off and murder them. That justice, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, is actually meant a way at limiting violence and not letting it go loose in the world. In an ancient society, it was easier to take offense and then go and murder the person and have, uh, there are no police in the modern as we have them in the modern world. Um, there were ways in which you could reign with violence. But one of the things that Calvin um, reverses these last commands that are more human-centric is he wants to make them about neighbor. And w- this one I love, he says, that you are preserve your neighbor's life by all means possible is what it means not to murder. To preserve your neighbor's life by all means possible." That, I think, is, is, a, is we read these negative things, and you're like, don't murder, check, which, as we know, Jesus picks up in the Sermon on the Mount that anybody who hates their brother has committed murder in their house. And, in the fall, we're, we'll be going through the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is our new Moses who goes up on the mountain and proclaims to us the law again the same way that Mo- Moses does in the book of Deuteronomy. Needless to say, that you shall not murder is this way of preserving life in the world. It sets the boundaries for life to be able to reign. You shall not commit adultery. It keeps honor of your neighbor's stuff, is what uh, Calvin says, and this was stealing. It keeps honor of your neighbor's life. That you shall not commit adultery in the world. You shall not be, um, there's other interpretations for this word, lewdness and such, and what What I think that this one captures for us is like 90% of the modern world. Um, The adultery of the eyes, as Jesus turns it to later, is this one in which we feast on other people. Coveting does this as well, stealing. These last ones, I think, take and deal with our vision in which we feast in so many different ways. Um, The worst example of this of all time is the Carl's Jr. commercial where a woman is in a bikini eating a large hamburger. Um, uh, is is in which we are feasting on a hamburger while watching something else feast. And part of it is, in the worst sense of the word, what we become as adulterous, as stealers, and as covetous covetors is consumers in the worst sense of the word. The world is there for our unadulterated consumption and not there for the preservation of life and each other and fidelity. And it's a fidelity that our God exercises to us. You share on that steel. Um, we went through the confessions this week. We're part of it. One of the things that Augustine points out is that if you play, this is not the way he says it. If you play Monopoly, because it didn't exist then, um, if you play Monopoly as a kid and you say, I'm going to crush my friends and drive them all into bankruptcy, your parents will say, well, that's not very nice. And then you'll sit down to dinner with your parents and your dad will share with your mom about how he's going to crush his competition into bankruptcy, Um, And what, what Augustine was pointing out is that when we tell these moral things to children, we don't really mean them. That the games that we play when we're young to destroy each other are the games that oftentimes adults will play as well. You shall not steal. You shall not drive others to ruin. This goes with bearing false witness against them. You shall not attempt to destroy your neighbor's life but to bring out the goodness that is there, to live in peacefulness with them. And the last one, thou shalt not cover your neighbor's wife, you shall neither set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male servant, his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbors. This is the, the most interior of the commandments, um, and it's one that should cause us to probe the ways in which we look at our neighbors in the world. It's one of the beliefs, I think, of us here at Defiance Church, there's the royal us for you, Shelley, if you're keeping track, um, is that the church has long often is tempted to abandon the art of neighborliness. You're to have the correct opinion about an injustice someplace else in the world. Your voting is supposed to represent some sort of larger moral ethic. And What I think what we try to believe here, or at least what I try to hold out for us, is really where the rubber meets the road on this, is do you know the name of the person who lives on your right and on your left? Do you know which concerns drive their life? Do you know where they turn to when they are sorrowful and in pain? Are you the type of person that they could come to for help? And almost more importantly, in the modern world, do you know them in a way that you could come to them for help? Allow them to serve you, that you would